0: Welcome to the Transformative Podcast. My name is Jelena Djurejnovic. Today we are joined by Dr. Peter Wright. He is an assistant professor at the Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. His work revolves around Yugoslav socialist internationalism and Yugoslavia's relations with the Global South during the Cold War, where he particularly focuses on development aid, education, and racism and racialization. In this episode today, we are going to zoom in on actors of Yugoslav socialist internationalism. Hi, Peter. Thank you for being here with me today.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: So in your work, uh, you particularly focus on Yugoslav experts in post-colonial Africa, and then on the other hand, on post-colonial students in Yugoslavia. Can you tell me briefly, what does their life trajectories tell us about Yugoslavia's relationship with the post-colonial world?
1: I think this question about Yugoslav experts' life trajectories and what it tells us about Yugoslav's relationship to the post-colonial world is a really uh, interesting one because it can unsettle or disrupt some hierarchies, like accepted hierarchies of uh, you know power. So, uh, if we take the example of Yugoslav experts in Libya, by the late 1960s, 90% of Yugoslav ex- experts are medical personnel in Libya. So, Libya essentially becomes a training ground for Yugoslav doctors um, in community health management and a wide variety of specializations such as lung disease. But the interesting thing is that the vast majority of these medical professionals work mostly alongside other Yugoslav medical workers in hospitals, often fully staffed by Yugoslavs or other Europeans. And so Libyan officials actually complain about this and the lack of training Yugoslavs are providing to domestic medical professionals. But the situation is that Libya has such a great need for doctors that Yugoslavia ultimately can't fill through uh, the regular aid agency and other channels that the Libyans are willing to sign these huge contracts with Zantus for large amounts of doctors. And also um, they contract independently with Yugoslav hospitals to send entire teams to staff Libyan hospitals and clinics. And the two sides also work out an agreement where work in Libya serves as Yugoslav doctors' internship requirements. These doctors cut their teeth in Libya and then return to Yugoslavia, and they bring back the expertise and experience from a post-colonial state to Yugoslavia. And what's more, Yugoslavia is receiving a lot of hard currency in return to help prop up their own economy. So I think this raises the interesting question of who is developing whom in this scenario. Yugoslav professionals are being trained in Libya, essentially, and Yugoslavia as a state is, in a way, receiving development funds through this. Libya never received loans because it's a wealthy petro state. Uh, They never received loans from Yugoslavia. So, I mean, this is a a different way to think about these relationships and arrangements in the non-aligned movement. But there's also the flip side. Yugoslav experts, you know, the vast majority are urban, highly educated professionals, and and mostly men, besides a lot of nurses who are, you know, men and women, but a lot of uh, women. And they come from you know big urban centers like Belgrade, Zagreb, Ljubljana, Skopje, Sarajevo, and and others like Split, Rijeka, and, and Nish. So while Yugoslav diplomats and officials always stressed the idea of equality, partnership, cooperation, as opposed to hierarchical implications of humanitarian aid, this term aid, pomoć, you know, or humanitarianism was actually avoided in official language with you know. Uh, post-colonial states, there's still definitely a pronounced ethos and attitude of tutelage or didacticism of donor and donee uh, of developed and undeveloped in Yugoslav's wider relationships with post-colonial states. It's, It's basically built into the program. Yugoslav experts were traveling to the global south to train and help develop local industries and staff personnel and not the other way around. Inevitably, I think there's a certain attitude of paternalism. There's Eurocentric prejudices about that just naturally accompanying development and technical cooperation work. But if I can you know, just talk about students, I think there's another interesting way that looking at students' biographies and their life trajectories upsets or disrupts the normal way we look at uh, these uh, non-relations. So despite these prevailing per- perceptions among many Yugoslav citizens that foreign students were the children of elite bourgeoisie the vast majority of students from post-colonial states in yugoslavia were from very humble backgrounds uh, they were urban and educated had high school education made them a minority in their home countries but still nowhere near the political and social elite it seems that for most students coming to europe from africa yugoslavia wasn't on the radar not even close to the first choice as a destination most wanted to go to Western Europe, Germany, or the Soviet Union. And most former students uh, with whom I've spoken to in Belgrade, for example, indicated they didn't have a choice where they went or they ended up in Yugoslavia by happenstance. So I think this, this type of analysis that I want to do allows us to see Yugoslavia's re- relationship to the post colonial world a little differently than it's normally presented. In most narratives, there's a bit of exceptionalism and celebratory pride about Yugoslavia's leading role. Tito and Yugoslavia are typically front and center as important counterweights to Cold War blocs. However, when looking at this, at the comparative numbers of international students in various European countries, East and West, and, and African students' preferences about destination, there's a way that Yugoslavia cr- comes across as peripheral still.
0: You talked about some motivations of the experts, such as the training and internships and so on. But um, how did it look like on the ground? What were the labor conditions? And also, how did these Yugoslav experts and professionals see themselves and their identity as well in contrast or as opposed to the local labor uh, in the global south where they work?
1: In terms of labor conditions, in my research, I typically go through, you know, the main source base are annual or semi-annual reports from Yugoslav experts. There's, there's a lot of griping. There's a lot of complaining about uh, labor conditions. Some of this, you know, is uh, laced with prejudices, racist prejudices about underdevelopment. But there's a lot of complaining about um, pay, their, their low salaries, or they didn't understand that uh, the cost of living would be what it was that maybe expected it to be lower. Most most reports, when they're not talking about technical aspects of the job. There's typically complaints about working conditions. And this is interesting because within these complaints, you see that this triangulation of Yugoslav experts' identity and uh, positionality, they triangulate their their status between that of Western experts, Eastern Bloc experts, and local professionals. So there are comments about the need to be paid more than local experts, just as uh, a given. There's a you know condescending ad- attitude towards non-European partners. That's not surprising. Uh, and this is you know well researched in other contexts of uh, other European socialist state experts in the global south. So, but one thing that might be a little bit more interesting is how Yugoslavs position themselves vis-a-vis experts from the Eastern Bloc. There is a lot of commentary and opprobrium reserved for, say, Bulgarian and Romanian competitor experts in African states. And this is actually more common than comments about local professionals or local experts. So in one example, in Ghana, uh, a Yugoslav tomato growing expert who was having disputes with his host threatens to leave Ghana and say and he says something to the effect of fine, just grow tomatoes however you want, go and get some cheap, inexperienced Bulgarian experts to teach you how to grow tomatoes. And this is sort of a a theme that uh, Yugoslavs held themselves apart. Yugoslav experts, in particular, held themselves apart from uh, what they saw as uh, less qualified, cheaper socialist bloc experts.
0: What about students in Yugoslavia? Students from uh, the post-colonial countries did they influence politics within Yugoslavia? What ideologies did they bring with them? How did they politically organize as well? And In other words, uh, are there some effects that their political activism had on Yugoslav society?
1: Yeah, I think so. Just to start with this question about their politics, I think that's a good place to start, because I think what I try to do is really focus on mostly African student and Arab student activism, and to see the students as autonomous agents with their own politics themselves. So I think previously, a lot of these students' activities have been interpreted through the PRISM of Yugoslav politics and Yugoslav student protests about international events. As a result, the, the international students' presence and activism sort of becomes instrumentalized to highlight Yugoslav politics. So in my manuscript, I try to show how these students brought their own politics to Yugoslavia and continued them under Yugoslav conditions and thus adapted and translated them. So. One of the examples I use is uh, uh, the group, a group of Sudanese students, Sudanese communists, who really expose and challenged Yugoslav non-aligned status politics. So these Sudanese, Sudanese students in the late 1950s, early 1960s, there's, they're often, they're not united, but they uh, cause equal amount of problems as uh, UAR and Iraqi communist students who are opposed to Arab nationalism and Nasserism. So there's this moment in 1961 where there are some serious protests and clashes, at least planned protests among African students uh, among Sudanese students, Sudanese communist students and other Sudanese students who support the new regime of Ibrahim Abud, who has recently been a uh, general in the military who executed a coup d'etat in 1958 and became uh, Sudan's president. Uh, and obviously these communist students, I and mean, this is a, a reactionary general for them, he's invited to Yugoslavia in 1960. And then he comes to the Belgrade first uh, non-aligned summit in Belgrade in 1961. And these Sudanese students plan to hold a protest, objecting to his presence and Yugoslavia support for General Abood. So that, I mean, this is one example of how these students are bringing their, their politics and uh, bringing them out into the public sphere in Yugoslavia and causing problems or headaches. On a more routine basis, international students are working through student unions, through uh, their own student unions, which are at the beginning national student unions. And this becomes a point of conflict with Yugoslav authorities as it pushes up against Yugoslav politics of neutrality. So Pan-African students, which there are many in Yugoslavia. They oppose student unions that are organized, conceived around the idea of, you know, nationality or, you know, individual uh, states. They want an um, umbrella Pan-African student union, and then they're opposing African students who prefer national-based unions. And there's a lot of back and forth between Yugoslav authorities. There's protests, letters of complaint are being constantly written to Yugoslav authorities, heated debates among the students themselves. So this is another way of, you know, African politics, a very, very hot, important issue of post-colonial African politics being brought to Yugoslavia. And African students, actually in 1962, they bring first pan-African student conference in Europe to Belgrade. International students from the post-colonial world, the Middle East, Africa, and Asia, for the most part, and Latin American students, they often worked across these national and continental borders. An example, a protest in Ljubljana. It's organized by Black African students who are protesting against local racism. But what's interesting, if you look at like who comes out, it's essentially all of the international students, um, Latin American, Asian, and Arab students. So they're performing, you know, post-colonial solidarity across the national, regional, continental borders. I could talk more about issues of Israel and Palestine. There's a little bit of friction until the late 1960s with Yugoslav authorities when Palestinian and Arab students want to protest against Israel. But what the presence and the protest of Yugoslav international students did was it really raised political and cultural awareness of Yugoslavs, the international political awareness of Yugoslavs. Foreign students were often the initiators of actions and protests focused on international events, whether they be about Patrice Lumumba's assassination, Palestine or Vietnam. And one issue that I've addressed in in an article is how students raised awareness about uh, domestic races in Yugoslavia. It's hard to quantify these type of things or how much foreign student protests and complaints about racism they faced influenced Yugoslavs, but I've tried to address this.
0: Thank you. I guess, uh, especially that you mentioned uh, Israel and Palestine, we can also talk about international students also as... um... Actors participating or contributing or initiating some practices of solidarity, uh, which, is, which was the case also with the Palestinian students with um, blood donations and so on. There, it was often the international students also that initiated some actions that were then joined by Yugoslav students and eventually also institutions.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's a high level of solidarity and participation among Yugoslavs. This is especially true in the 1960s. But later on, there's a high degree of mobilization, especially among students.
0: Uh, This all brings me also to my next question about the reception, of course, of these uh, exchanges in Yugoslavia. How did the broader uh, society engage with solidarities and exchanges with the Global South, including, of course, uh, the Yugoslav experts uh, who uh, were in across the post-colonial world, but also uh, these uh, numbers of uh, international students across uh, the Yugoslav state.
1: This is one where there's you know there's a lot of tension and contradiction among Yugoslavs. Uh, so typically we look at non-alignment building Yugoslav's profile, you know raising Yugoslav's profile and reputation in the world. But I think there's behind the scenes, there's a lot of uh, discontent, particularly about finances. So on the, on the micro level, one thing that you see constantly in the, in the archive concerning students, but this can be extrapolated, and it is extrapolated by some people further, about the money being spent, you know, state resources being spent on these international students, their stipends. So Uh, Students themselves complain, you know, how how can we spend this money on bringing these students here when we don't have enough money ourselves? And then there's officials in different meetings who say, how can we be spending so much money on, you know, development funds for African countries when we need these funds in Bosnia or Montenegro or, or elsewhere? So, In terms of the reception of these exchanges and solidarities uh, with the global South, I think it's a mixed bag. There's a high degree of solidarity, but then there's friction and tension about, from what I've seen, mostly finances, um, which can be expressed racially through racism.
0: Well, uh, I was going to ask you um, for the end about the... Issues of, that you uh, did uh, briefly touch upon uh, of racism and anti-racism in these relations, particularly regarding the post-colonial students within Yugoslavia.
1: My uh, objective in addressing the question of racism in Yugoslavia is to try to get outside this, you know, this sort of mundane, obvious point of, you know, is there racial prejudice? I think there's racial prejudice everywhere. Expressed in different ways. But what I found interesting in my research is that in Yugoslavia, there is a very dynamic conversation in the public sphere, in in study, in academic studies, sometimes in newspapers. There are demonstrations that are protesting local racism. So, this issue of, you know, is there racism is actually discussed, not, you know, not without tension, but it's discussed openly in many ways in Yugoslavia. And I think that's important. And I think that actually. Perceptions about racism, about racial identity, evolves over the from the 1950s through the 1980s in Yugoslavia because of uh, these international students' protests, daily conversations um, with uh, with their fellow with with Yugoslavs, and this is actually something that I have, you know, I've discussed with other scholars of Eastern Europe of the socialist bloc states, and from what i've been in in these conversations it seems like this is unique you won't find you know studies about uh, soviet racism in a uh, academic journal in the soviet union or east germany whereas you find that in yugoslavia there does seem to be an interesting um, willingness to engage these issues to a certain to a certain degree in yugoslavia
0: thank you very much for speaking to me uh today peter uh, this was the transformative podcast of the Research Center for the History of Transformations uh, with me, Jelena Jurenovich and Peter Wright.
1: Thank you.